All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Now the sun's just starting to climb up over the treetops. And it's gonna be a beautiful day that's plain to see. But I won't be around at all, so don't even bother to call. Cause on a day like today, there's one place I gotta be, gone fishing. Now I suppose there are lots of things that I should be doing. But it's funny right now, nothing seems to come to my mind. You know, fishing tends to put me at ease and straighten out my priorities. I know nothing's more important than what's on the end of my line. Gone fishing. Gonna sit back, relax, and leave my worries behind. Gone fishing. You know, there's nothing like a fishing trip to give a man a peace of mind. I know the car needs washing. The roof has a leak. My income tax was due last week. But I don't care because I'm gone fishing today. Now I've gone fishing with Bill Dance today. Wow, did I just do that classic song a disservice. My apologies to David Muir who wrote that beautiful song. Wow, was that bad. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, and yeah, that song is something else. Not the way I sing it, but all of the memories it brings back. I'm sure you remember that as the theme song to the Bill Dance Outdoor Show. And the reason I'm singing it today, or mutilating it more likely, is because, yes, indeed, we have the legend himself, Mr. Bill Dance, on the Rodcast. I could not be more honored that Mr. Dance was willing to take the time and sit and chat with little old me. Now, I got to tell you, like most anglers, Bill Dance has been a part of my life for a very long time, though I only met him in person a few years back. But Bill Dance Outdoors has been a part of my life since I was a little kid. And way back when, even before ESPN picked up the show in 1981, making it a national outdoor viewing favorite, I remember seeing the show from time to time and always learning something about fishing from it. I think Mr. Dance has taught a lot of us more about fishing than just about any other angler educator out there. And the opportunity for me to meet one of my heroes and sit and chat with him, well, that's just something else. And since Mr. Dance is on the Rodcast today, I thought we'd keep this week's episode tied to a Bill Dance theme. So this week's bourbon break will take a deep dive into a classic bottle of Jack Daniels Old Number 7, since Jack is, after all, a Tennessee whiskey, and we all know that trademark hack hat of Mr. Dance's is a University of Tennessee hat, and that Mr. Dance is a dyed-in-the-wool Tennessean. So we'll bubble that big old Black Label bottle today, and then I'm going to count down my top 10 swim baits for bass. So yes, indeed, this is the Bill Dance episode. And rather than waste your time listening to me pontificate on professorial matters this week, let's get right to talking to Bill Dance. As always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. 
And please let all of your friends, family, and associates know about the Rodcast. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. Let's get to dancing. Well, we have got a real treat on the Fishing Professor Rodcast today because we have a true legend in the studio. That's right. Bill dances with us, and I couldn't be more excited. Now, for just about anyone even remotely familiar with recreational fishing, Bill Dance's name should be familiar. He is an icon in the fishing world, and I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said that Dance is probably the most influential angler throughout the world of fishing. Through his television shows, tournament appearances, and product branding, Mr. Dance is the cornerstone to American fishing. Mr. Dance was named BASS Angler of the Year three times. He won 23 national bass fishing titles and seven BASS titles. Of his 78 total BASS entries during his tournament career, Mr. Dance finished 64 times in the money. He had seven wins and eight times he was runner-up. He has six third-place finishes, 40 top 10 finishes. That's 51% of the tournaments he entered. He finished in the top 10 and 51 times he finished in the top 20, which translates to a top 20 finish, 65% of the tournaments he he fished. In his first 11 tournaments, he was only out of the top seven once. He won seven of the first 17 events he entered. He's been inducted into both the National Freshwater Hall of Fame and the International Game Fish Association's Hall of Fame. He is the author of numerous books and the host of the iconic television series, Bill Dance Outdoors, which began airing in 1968 and has found a home on multiple networks, including ESPN, TNN, and the Outdoor Life Network. So like I said, Mr. Dance is a legend and an icon in the world of fishing, and I am so thrilled to have him as a guest on the Rodcast. Mr. Dance, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. It's my pleasure, buddy. It's always a pleasure to be with you and talk with you. Oh, thank you, sir. So we usually start things off on the Rodcast by getting a little background information from our guests about how they got introduced into fishing. Could you tell us about those days back in Mulberry Creek in, on, in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and fishing with your grandfather, and how those introductions really ignited a passion about fishing for you? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, uh, I, I say this, and it, it, uh, I was blessed as a youngster growing up because I had a daddy and a granddaddy that introduced me to this sport, but especially my my daddy was a doctor, my granddaddy a doctor, and for five generations back we're all doctors. And but my granddaddy was more of a country doctor, and he knew everybody in the little uh, county just south of Nashville, about eighty miles, Moore County. Moore County was the uh, uh, home of Jack Daniels, but it was a dry county, but it was a little creek that meandered its way through uh, Moore County uh, called Mulberry Creek. But a baseball pitcher, a center fielder could probably throw a baseball from my granddaddy, grandmother's front porch into Mulberry Creek. And I spent every second I could wading the creek swimming in the creek, skipping rocks in the creek, fishing, catching crawfish, pilgrimites. I was in that creek all the time. But anyway, um, my grandfather, my granddaddy, um, taught me more about fish anatomy 
than technique, but technique played a role in it. Uh, he taught me about sound, how fish hear, how fish see, uh, uh, how to wait up the creek, uh, moving the rocks or gravel in the creek. The creeks ran clear most of the times. Uh, how moving up the creek, the debris and uh, disturbing the rocks and the debris would float behind me to always fish up the creek. Uh, talked about the sound that the gravel would make as I waded along. The shadows, the sound, the movement, uh, how clear water, how fish could see. And I learned a lot from that. And it played a, a major role uh, in my fishing career in later life. But uh, moving water back then and even today is still one of my favorite forms of fishing. Uh, but we fished the creek mainly uh, most of the time I did. And then a little town like Lynchburg, Tennessee, population 399, the town would uh, close up about a half a day during the week and everybody would uh, the little square would, would close and stores would close people would go on a picnic or they would work in their garden or they'd mow their yard or they would go fishing or they'd go to drive to Nashville or whatever they wanted to do that half a day during the week but my granddaddy and my grandmother we'd all go fishing we'd go to the creek or we'd go to a lake and in that time, my grandmother would throw a quilt out, and she'd sit there and crochet under a shade tree, and my granddaddy would, uh, he'd still fish uh, the rod and reel, and he'd fish for shell crackers, and I remember there was a hardware store. Back in those days, growing up, we didn't have Walmarts, Bass Pro Shops, Academies. The only place you could buy fishing tackle was at a hardware store. But on the square in Lynchburg, there was a hardware store there. It was owned by Connor Motlow. Uh, his brother was Regger Motlow, who ran the distillery, Jack Daniels Distillery. But Connor had a fellow work for him there by the name of uh, Clayton Tosh. And I would go in and out of that hardware store all the time. And one thing I always wanted to see was his selection of fishing lures. But one particular lure always caught my eye. And he'd take it out from his glass case and he'd put it on the counter. And he'd let me take it out of the box and I'd look at it. I admired that one particular lure. And it cost 75 cents. Well, one day... I was down on the creek, and they had a glove factory there, and the siren would blow at 11.30. And I knew I'd better be sitting at the table. My grandmother served back, we called lunch dinner, and we called uh, supper, supper. And that was what folks in the country called breakfast, dinner, and supper. But I knew I'd better be at 
be there by 1130. Well, anyway, I got to my grandmother's house. I came off the creek and got there. And she said, your granddad is going lake fishing today. And she reached in her apron, pulled out a handkerchief. And that's where she kept her change. She had a knot tied in it. And she opened it. And she took three quarters. She put them in my hand. She said, why don't you run up to the hardware store and get you that fishing lure you've been wanting? And that faster than a minute could jump a dipper, I was out the door, up on the square, into that hardware store I went. And I told Tosh, I said, Tosh, I got to have that lure. I gave him three silver quarters. He reached under the counter and he said, I've had it hidden because I knew someday you were going to get it and I didn't want to sell it. And he slid that box over and it was a frog colored jitterbug. And today they still sell that bait, but it sells for a lot more money than 75 cents. I think you can buy it at Bass Pro for $6.75 today. <laughs> but he gave me that bait and I charged home. Grandmother fixed dinner. We had a good meal. Cleaned up. We jumped in the car and we drove up the highway about 12 miles to a lake called Cumberland Springs, a spring fed lake. And this is the day that changed my whole direction in life. Grandmother spread the quilt. She sat down. It was a spring that came in right behind this big tree. She took three double colas, put them on a stringer, and pitched them in the spring to keep them cold. I had a little Shakespeare reel and a little true temper metal rod with braided line on it and a little piece of cat gut we call monofilament today, made by Cortland. It was fly line, but I took it, we, we tied it to our fly line on a fly, for a fly rail, and I tied on this jitterbug and skipped down through a bunch of bushes out on a point. And when I walked out on that point, I looked to my right, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. There was a largemouth bass, about two pounds, two and a half, and swimming right beside it was another largemouth, about a pound and a half. And I took this little metal rod and I started whipping it, making false casts, like I was fixing to make a false cast. And I whipped it back and forth about six or eight times and I let this jitterbug fly. And I made a pretty good cast. The bait landed about 20 feet from these two fish. And when the bait hit the water, both fish stopped swimming. And instantly the first thought was the education about the anatomy, about what fish hear. I said, those fish heard that bait hit. They stopped. They can't see it. I know it's too far away. That bait is 15 to 20 feet from those fish. And I started reeling it. Now, a jitterbug's got a big metal aluminum lip on it and it started waddling and I when I started the movement they turned in the direction of the bait 
that they can hear this. And all of this was just running through. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe what was was going on. It was just it was amazing. And I stopped the bait. They stopped. And then I started the bait, and they started swimming in the direction of the bait again. I'd stop the bait, they'd stop. I'd start the bait, they'd start. I'd stop, they'd stop. I'd start, they'd start. And they kept getting closer to the bait. And this water was so clear. I'm, it's like it's just like I'm underwater, and I can see everything going on. It's just it's just so clear, and I cannot believe what I'm looking at. And he always said the bigger fish is going to be the most dominant. And I could not believe this, and I, I kept reeling. Here I am trying to lure them out of their world into mine with a phony, with a piece of plastic with metal on it and two hooks. And I'd reel it a little bit, and they'd look. They'd get a little closer. I'd stop it. And I didn't know what to, I said. I'm going to just keep doing this. And I and I kept doing it. And now the bait is out probably 10 yards from the from the bank. And all of a sudden, this bigger fish rushes up within about six feet of the bait ahead of this smaller bass. And I started it up again, and he rushes up to about three feet of the bait. And I, my legs were shaking so hard, you, it, you could have cracked a wall in between my kneecaps. And I, I started reeling the bait again, and just out of nowhere, just boom, he blew right into the bait and grabbed it. And I just set the hook, started reeling this little old metal rod and trying to reel this reel. And all of a sudden, this pound, pound and a half bass charged in, and he's trying to eat the bait too. And all of this, I'm just looking at it. It's just, it's just like I'm looking in an aquarium. And I'm fighting this fish, and he's jumping, and he's going underwater, and I'm fighting him. And this other fish, it's like he's trying to take it away from me. And the excitement was so great. I, I got him within about 10 feet of the bank, and I couldn't take it anymore. I just threw the rod over my shoulder and grabbed the line, and I just well roped him right up on the bank. Oh, wow. And, oh, it was the most exciting thing I had ever seen. I, I said, look what just happened. I'm, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I've tricked this fish into hitting this pony, this imitation. And I'd, I'd caught smallmouth in the creek, in Mulberry Creek. But this largemouth looked so much bigger than anything I'd ever caught. And I, I got the hook out of him, and I ran as fast as I could run. And I ran straight back through those bushes where my grandmother and granddaddy were. And I said, look, 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 look what I caught, what I caught. And my granddaddy said, my goodness. Well, we didn't have cell phones then, and we didn't have point-and-shoot cameras with us there, but we did at the house. And so granddaddy said, let me have him. I said, what are you going to do with him? He said, I'm going to put him on the stringer. I said, no, he might get away. He said, no, this stringer will hold him. And he had caught a couple of red ears. And he said, we're going to put him on the stringer. I said, no, let me just put him in the car and I'll sit on him till we get him home. He said, no, he'll be fine. So he put him on the stringer and put him in the water. He said, where's your rod? I said, I don't know. He said, go back down there and get it. And I went back and got it. And I sat there and watched that fish. And I told my granddaddy, I said, you won't believe what happened. He said, tell me about it. 
And I said, that fish, the cast, and he'd stop, and I'd stop, and I'd reel, and I'd get closer. I said, they could hear the bait. And he said, they could. And I said, but they couldn't see it. But then when they did see it, they started making their move. And that that ordeal, that experience changed. It changed. I said, this is something I, I got to do. This is just something I want to do. I want to get into this sport some way, somehow. And I, I dreamed. Uh, I, that's all I talked about. And this is something I just got to do. And uh, even all the way up till I finally landed a job uh, in the sporting good business, uh, I, I still think about it. Uh, and I was just fortunate that I got into this business and the business afforded me an opportunity to work all four corners of the industry from working for a national uh, lure sponsor to the media end of it, radio, newspaper, magazine, television, radio, to working uh, in design, lure design, to uh, just all aspects of it. And over all these years, uh, being able to, to work with outdoor writers, to work with manufacturers, to work with uh, sport figures, to work with uh, to, to work all four corners of this industry, and uh, to help in design, to help into the promotional end of it, to help uh, uh, just just to work to work the whole to work the whole gamut. It's just been a a, a wonderful, wonderful life to be able to do the things that I've done and to meet the, some of the greatest people in the world and to be, to be there in the beginning and to meet the people that started this industry, to meet uh, the Van Ellis's with Bomber Bait Company, to meet Carl Lawrence with Lawrence Electronics, to meet uh, Bill Norman with Norman Bait Company, to meet and work for Cotton Cordell with Cordell Bait Company, to meet Lenny Borstrom with Garcia that came with the Garcia Reels, to meet uh, just to, to meet the the pioneers in this industry, and to get to know them and and, and learn from them. Uh, it it was just a, a wonderful wonderful thing to 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 live that to live that cycle to live that time back in history of uh, uh, of the the pioneers that. Uh, the forest woods that started with uh, glass boats, the the aluminum boat craze, the the trolling motors from Silver Troll to Motor Guide to Mincota to, and then watch the watch the, the birth of the, the the trolling motors from flashers to grass, and watch the. Uh, uh, industry go from fiberglass rods to to boron to the, the graphites to uh, uh, and then the hook craze you know then lines and watch the different from uh, got in with the early days with uh, Jack McCarran with with Dupont and Strand 
I was just fortunate to be there and to to live that to live that uh, era. It was just a uh, uh, a wonderful thing, and uh, uh, not to say that there's a lot of people that could have done it, but I was just there at the right time, and I, I thank the good Lord for it. That uh, I lived, I lived at a time that afforded me the opportunity, the chance to uh, to be there at a wonderful time to see this industry and to meet Ray Scott and to. Uh, uh, work with Ray and to have the pleasure of knowing that he was a, a, a good close friend and, and to watch his dream become a reality and to meet Johnny Mars and Johnny today is still one of my best friends and to watch his dream become a reality. It's just, it's just a wonderful, I've had a wonderful life. I really have. Uh, it, it's just, uh, and then, uh, being able to, my wife told me, she said, you know, you can do anything you want to do if you set your mind to it. Uh, it's just, you just work toward it and work hard and, and treat people the way you want to be treated and uh, uh, you'll get there. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, I there's just so many people that I've, uh, you don't get there by yourself. You, uh, there's a destiny that calls us brothers. No one goes his way alone. All that we send in the lives of others come back into our own. My wife told me that that one time, and she said, never forget that. There's a destiny that calls us brothers. No one goes his way alone. All that we send in the lives of others come back into our own. And there's no truer words that were ever spoken. So. To, to live the, the, the lure industry days, the, the Bill Normans, the Cotton Cordells, the Charles Spences, the Strike King. Uh, they, I even owned half the, uh, half the Strike King at one time. And to, to meet the, the, see Sam Walton come into play to, to Walmart and, and to, it, it just, it's just, it's just been a good, a good life. It really is. I could sit and listen to you tell these stories all day, Mr. Dance. This is that was just incredible. So you mentioned Ray Scott, and we recently lost Ray. And uh, you know, oh. Ray, Ray was the founder of BASS and Bassmasters and the Bassmaster Tournament Trail. Could you speak a little bit more about your thoughts about Ray Scott and what his forming of BASS did for the sport of fishing and did for you personally? And I do want to note that part of the legend of Bill Dance is that you caught the first BASS tournament bass in history at that inaugural BASS event that Ray Scott launched. So could you give us some thoughts about Ray since we recently lost him? Ray, Ray was, uh, oh my goodness. You, you, Ray was everything. Ray was a jokester. Ray was a salesman. Ray was a brilliant, brilliant individual. Ray had a dream that became a major reality. I remember when it started, uh, Diane and I, my wife, we went to Pickwick Lake on the Tennessee River 
it's one of the TV8 chains of lakes from Kentucky Lake. It starts, it flows into uh, uh, the Cumberland into the Mississippi, just north of uh, uh, north of uh, up at Gilbertsville, Kentucky. Just go to uh, if you look at your map, you can tell where it flows, but Anyway, you come down from Kentucky Lake uh, south, and then you run into Pickwick Lake, and then from Pickwick, uh, moving south, uh, you have Wilson and Wheeler, and then Gunnersville, and then Nickajack, and it forms a big TVA chain of lakes. Well, anyway, Pickwick is about an hour and 20 minutes from my home in West Tennessee, Cuyable, Tennessee. And one morning we drove over to Pickwick and I had a little John boat with a little uh, 10 horse Mercury and I, Diane and I put in a little creek there with the boat ramp and we were fishing in, in the holler there and I'd moved out close to this point and a, a big boat uh, roared up with about a 50 horse engine on it and i recognized two people in the boat one was a fellow by the name of glenn andrews the best bass fisherman i believe i've ever known and a fellow was working for the tennessee wildlife resource agency ed house our game and fish uh, department and there was another fellow in the boat and ed said hey bill i said ed how you doing and I recognized Glenn Andrews because Glenn had worked several boat shows, one in Memphis where I had first met Glenn. He spoke and they said, Glenn, this is Glenn Turner. He said, Bill, this is Ray Scott. And I said, are you uh, Ray? I said, I've gotten an invitation from you to fish a tournament on Beaver Lake in Arkansas. He said, yeah, I've sent you one. And, um, Sure, hope you can make it. I'd love to have you fish our, our first tournament over there coming up uh, this June. Now, this was like uh, April. And I said, well, I sure would like to. Uh, never fished a big bass tournament. He said, well, we'd love to have you fish it. And he said, we're going in to eat breakfast uh, and down below the dam uh, in a at the Botel. Now this, the Botel was a big quarter boat that had been converted. It floated up on the bank and had been converted into uh, this fisherman's headquarters. Everybody just hung out around the Botel and Bill Bellis, who owned the Botel, had made it into a uh, big dining area. They cooked catfish and it was a big restaurant and the top quarters he made into a uh, a motel they called the Botel. He said, we're going down there and have breakfast. Why don't you join us? And I said, okay. And Glenn said, have y'all caught anything? I said, I'll call three or four little bass. And he, I said, how about y'all? He said, yeah, we did pretty good. We, uh, we caught 15 or 20 and caught several nice fish in the four to six pound range. I said, what? He said, yeah, in the four to six pound range. And I said, Whereabouts? He said, up toward Dry Creek. And he turned to Ed and he says, that's the name of the creek? And Ed said, yeah. He said, this is the first time we've been on the lake. 
and uh, we went up there and found a, a big U-bend in the creek. And they were out there in about 17 to 21 feet of water. And I said, what was 17 to 21 feet of water? He said, the bass. And I said, you caught fish 17 to 21 feet? And he said, yeah. And I said, you mean to tell me you caught them that deep? And he said, yeah. And I said, I can't believe that. And he said, well, we did. He said, right here is a channel point. And I said, what's the channel point? And he says, where the channel turns off of this point right here and it goes across and it hits that point right there and there's another channel point there. If you'll throw straight out off this point right here, it's about 17 feet. I, I came across it uh, this morning, uh, checked it on my flasher. It's about 17. There's fish on that point, uh, out off that turnout right there right now. So if you throw out off the end of it, it's about 17. You'll probably catch you some bass right there right now. And I said, how deep? And he said, about 17. Well, I, I, I grew up fishing Oxbow Lakes and the base around cypress trees and stuff, three, four feet. If I got out in six feet of water, I thought I was fishing in the ocean. And I said, 17 feet. He said, yeah, how heavy a sink are you fishing? I said, quarter. He said, well, switch up to a three-eighths. Three you got any three-eighths? And I said, no. He said, here, let me give you some. And he gave me half a dozen. I said, good night, that's a big sinker. And he said, yeah, that'll, that'll get it down for you. He said, look, in, in a little bit, we've got a couple of things to do. Why don't y'all meet us in about an hour then at the hotel and have breakfast? I said, okay, this is, this is a true story. And so I put that sinker on and I put a, put a worm on and I went, whoop. I threw it at, way out off the end of that point. And I said, and, and, and four and five and six and seven and eight and 16 and 17. Boom, and it hit the bottom. I said, good night. That's 17 feet deep. And Diane said, okay. And I said, I've never fished deep. I've never fished that deep. I, 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 wait, I just had a hit. And I went, boom, and I set the hook. And I said, Diane, I got a bass on. And she said, okay. And I said, I'm not kidding. I've got a bass on. And she said, okay, really, man? And he's about two and a half pounds. And I said, do you see what I just did? And she said, what? What's wrong? I said, I just caught a bass 17 feet deep. And she said, I know it. And she said, I, I can't believe I just did that. I've never caught a fish that deep in my life. Do you see what just happened? And she said, what? I said, your husband just caught a bass 17 feet deep. My gosh, that man told me to fish that deep. And can you believe what he just told me? She said, well, yeah, I guess. I just, what are you so excited? I said, this is changing the way I'm fishing. I can't believe this. I said, wait a minute. I said, get off my hook, fish. And I threw him, I turned him loose, and I went, Tong! and I threw right back. And I said, 16, 17, 18. I said, I'm 18 feet. And I, and I moved it about two feet, and boink. And I said, lie here, another one, another one. <laughs> she said, 
you need to calm down, drink some water. You're going to have a heart attack. I said, I don't care. I'm catching fish 17 and 18 feet deep. This is a miracle. I can't believe what's going on. This is something. I'm telling you, this is amazing. I can't believe this. And I mean, this was, hey, this was, this was the biggest deal in my life. I said, I don't believe this. And I'm starting to think, oh, up at Yellow Creek. Oh, out from Dry Creek. Oh, up at here, up at Pompey Branch, out, out from Halls Branch, up here. I'm just thinking of 900 places that, that, that where I can catch fish in deep water. And I said, golly. And he said he caught some after 20 feet. Oh, my goodness. And I'm just, I am just going crazy. And I said, oh, my goodness. I said, we got to get, I said, okay, come, we're going to quit. I'm, we got to get with this guy. I got to talk to this guy. And so, and I said, Ray Scott said that tournament. I said, I bet I can catch fish deep over there at table uh, at the Beaver Lake, Beaver Lake. So anyway, I was so excited. I said, I'm going to try it one more time. So I threw back and I had a hit. No, I didn't get a hit then. I threw back the fourth time. And I had one hit it, and I, and I got him about halfway, and he got off. And I said, I've seen all I want to see. And I, I turned, I put it on the trailer, and went down there. And Ray was trying to talk to me and sell me on fishing the tournament. And I said, okay, okay. And, and Glenn, I said, Glenn, uh, what do you think those fish will be doing over there? He said, well, they'll probably be on a deeper pattern. And I said, what's a pattern? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I was so great. And he said, well, he said, uh, I said, give me your number. And uh, so he gave me his telephone number. And so I called him and I told Ray, I said, uh, uh, I said, Ray, I, 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 I'm going to probably end up fishing your tournament if I can. And uh, my boss, my sales are up. And but anyway, I was so excited about catching fish in deep water. I, that just, Glenn told me, he said, let me tell you something. He said, you remember this, you ain't got but one man to beat. That's the man in first place. Don't forget, if there's 500 people in that tournament, don't worry about the other 499. You got to beat one man, and that's the man in first place, Bill. And remember this. Strategy wins tournaments. And I said, okay. And I'm, I'm writing down everything he says. And uh, so I got a phone call from the world's largest Ford dealer, Hull Dobbs in Memphis, Tennessee. The guy's name was Oscar Oakley. And he, he called me at work. And he said, Bill, his secretary said, uh, uh, Bill, Mr. Oakley would like to talk to you. Can you come by his office? And I said, yes, ma'am. Well, I went by his office and I walked in and had big green plush carpet. And he had a Walnut Burrow desk. I'll never forget it. And I, I walked in there and I looked across that big office. It looked like the president of the United States office. And he said, hey, Bill come on in son and I walked across his office and he got up he walked around his desk and shook my hand he says I understand there's a big tournament bass tournament coming on up at, going on at Beaver Lake in Arkansas I said yes sir he said I'd like to sponsor you in that event and I said what, do you, what does that mean what do you mean 
And he said, I'd like to sponsor you. I'd like to pay your entry fee and your expenses in that event. And I said, well, I certainly do appreciate that. And he said, well, I've been keeping up with you in the newspaper. Henry Reynolds, your outdoor editor here, writes some favorable things about you. And we'd, we'd like to sponsor you. And I said, well, I certainly appreciate that. And he said, if you'd send me the information, we'll uh, take care of that for you. And I said, well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Oakley, I certainly appreciate it. And uh, so he sponsored me in that very first tournament. And I got up there and I started, I went, my sales were up, my boss let me go. And when I got there, I called Glenn, talked to Glenn a little bit about, I said, and he said, tell you what you do. I've got a guest house behind my house. You just stay there. And I said, well, I appreciate it. And so he uh, he said, I'll tell you what you do. I want you to get in your boat, and I want you just to drive down the bank and look at things. I said, what am I looking at? He said, what you see above the surface, it doesn't stop at the surface. It continues out under the water. I said, okay. He said, when you leave the marina in the morning, you just idle down the bank and start looking for just things. If you were a fish, that you'd like to hang around. And I want you to concentrate on depths of 15 to 20 feet. I said, 15 to 20. He said, don't worry about the depth. All it takes, remember, it takes you bait just a little bit longer to get to 20 feet than it does 10 feet. He said, how long is your boat? And I said, it's uh, seven to 16 feet. And he said, okay, just add four more feet to it and then stand back from it. That's not very deep, is it? I said, no. He said, okay, 20 feet isn't all that deep. It is mentally, but it's not. It's not. I said, okay. Well, sure enough, I got in the boat and I started idling. And the first thing I saw was right across from the marina. I looked and I saw something just going straight up the hill. And I said, there's a pathway going up through there. And I said, there's, there's a place at Pickwick that looks like that. And that's a logging road. I said, yeah, that's a logging road. So I had my pad and I wrote it down. And then I turned out and I started idling down this bluff. And I was looking at my flasher and I was in 60 feet of water and I idling down this bluff and all of a sudden it jumped from 60 to 20. And it was a, it was a big flat and it, it went 20, 60, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, boom. And it dropped back off to 60. And I said, well, that's different. So I made a note of it and I went on down the lake and I saw where the 60 just disappeared. And I just came right up on top of uh, 20 foot again. And it was a, a turn. That's one of those turnouts. And I made a note of it. And I, I kept making notes of all these little places. And uh, it looked different. I got on another bluff. And I didn't find anything different. And I went on and got on another bluff. And I found another one of those little house, one of those ledges that about... 20 foot, 18 to 20 feet. And so that night I called Glenn, 
that when I got over, I called Glenn and he came out to the guest house and I said, what is that? He said, it's just a deep ledge. Did you fish it? And I said, no, I'm gonna, I, I just spent the day looking for places. He said, you go back and you fish those places tomorrow. And he said, let me show you a trick you can do with this hook. You turn that hook back on your worm and just let them pull down on it. Don't try to catch them. Just let them pull that hook down. I said, okay. Well, I went to that road bed. And that's where I caught my very first fish in the tournament. And I threw up on it three times. I had three hits. Just pulled the worm down. And I just left it. I went to that ledge. I threw four times. And I had three hits, and I left it. I went to that turnout, and I threw up on it. And I had two hits, and I just left it. And then I went to a place on, in the timber, and I found a big, big slide, and I threw up on two up on it. There fish were there, and then I, I was really feeling pretty good, you know, that I I, I had fish located, uh, and I found about seven places. If the wind was blowing this way, I could go that way. If the wind was blowing that way, I could go this way. But anyway, the first morning of that tournament, uh, we lined up. I lined way out on the far left end, and uh, they fired the gun at a shotgun start. And uh, Ray looked at me. He said, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And he said, why aren't you up here in the front? I said, I'm going to let everybody go. I don't want to get in that, all that wash. And uh, he said, oh, okay. And later he asked me again why I did that, and I told him. And the boy with me was a boy by the name of Troy Anderson from Little Rock. And they fired the gun, and I just turned and went straight across and pulled in this little pocket. And just as I pulled into the pocket, I, I had a I had a 50 I had a 50 or 60. I can't remember. I think it was a in Mursky, Ray Mursky from Dallas. He had a 50 or 60, or I had a 50 or 60. I can't remember. And uh, he went, I just cut it off, and, and I had a, a 16-foot boat, 17-foot boat, glass boat, and I just ran to the front of the, the bow and it, as I was walking to the front, I went, whing, I made a cast straight at that logging road. And I grabbed my trolling motor and I lifted it over the front. And by then that worm had time to get down to about 18, 19 foot feet. And I had the trolling motor down and there was a tree right there. And I just pushed out, held it off the tree and I felt a fish hit it. And I just reeled down and went, boom. I set the hook, and Troy said, that was quick, and I reeled it, and it was about a two-and-a-half-pounder, and I just reeled him up, went, choom, lifted him over in the boat. He said, look. I said, what? He said, look out, Johnner. All the boats are still, they hadn't even gotten out of the cove yet. He said, that's the first, I'll bet you that's the first bass of the tournament. And uh, I just turned, took him off the hook, and fished him in the well, and I could still see Mursky. Mursky hadn't even gotten up and gotten under the bridge yet, so I uh, the, all the boats were still going out of the cove, and uh, I fixed the worm with two threw right back, and boom, another one hit it. And I set the hook on him and got him through him in the well. And he said, I bet that's a second bass. <laughs> he just laughed. And I said, Throw up there. So he threw, and I caught 
I don't know, I caught seven or eight, six or seven right there, and he caught about that many. And then they kind of thinned down a little bit, and I said, let's leave them. Let's don't beat them to death, because we probably need them tomorrow. So we pulled off of them, and I ran up there on the bluff wall and uh, limited out. We had our limit. And so I said, he said, what are we going to do the rest of that? I said, we're going to look for places. So we started looking for places. And then Ray asked me, he said, uh, why were you sitting way out there on the end? And I said, well, I had a place right over there on that bluff. And he said, well, that wasn't, that wasn't 150 yards from the marina. I said, I know it. And, I, but, and Troy said, the boat won him out of the cove. Bill had a bass, had two bass in the boat. He said, really? He said, that's probably the first bass in the tournament. Troy said, hey, it was. I wasn't even doubt it was. But that's how the first one came up. But that is, uh, th- that's just an incredible story. I mean, I'm sitting here just hanging on every word, but I'm going to, I'm going to oh, you... go ahead, sir. I, I didn't really get to, to tell you about Ray, but I, I'll tell you about Ray. He was, Ray was, I know there's no question in my mind. And, and I know Tom's not here anymore. Uh, but Tom would tell you, I knew Tom so well. Tom was one of my best buddies. I I love Tom man to death. But Tom would tell you, as far as she's gone, uh, Jerry McKinnis is gone. And I know Jerry would tell you that Jerry was one of my, I doubt if I'd be doing TV if it wasn't for Jerry. Uh, and I know Forrest would probably tell you. I know Tom would tell you. And I'm looking at people in the industry uh, that would tell you, and I can tell you, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today had it not been for Ray. Uh, Ray, Ray did so much. Ray did so much uh, for this industry. Uh, He... um, I can't even begin to tell you what he did. He he he, he just did so much for this industry. He uh, he got he, he got people uh, he got the outboard he got the outboard industry uh, to build a bigger, quieter, safer safer engines. He got the boating industry. To build uh, uh, safer boats, uh, the industry to build boats with live wells, uh, with live wells with ideal circulation to keep fish alive. He changed the industry uh, as far as the lure industry, the rod and reel industry. Uh, we all wouldn't be where we are today had it, had it not been for Ray. Let's let's talk about where we are today because I, I, you know, long before the internet, you mentioned your start in TV, and even before cable TV, your show and a few others like you know what Roland Martin and Jimmy Houston were doing. This was really how so many of us actually learned about fishing, and 
your shows in particular, I think particularly a lot of us of a particular age, we just kind of took you as sort of our teacher. And I have to say that that same population, I think a lot of us also fell in love with Luke Bryan's song, The Bill Dance Song, and the accompanying video, which is basically an homage to what you gave so many of us. What was it like working with Luke Bryan on that video, and how did having an artist of Bryan's caliber pay such a tribute feel? Well, I think uh, anytime, anytime somebody uh, writes an article about you, uh, there's a lot. Uh, it's, it's something special. But when somebody uh, writes a song about you, makes it that, that's something even more special. Uh, Luke, I know, uh, I guess one day, Luke and Red Akins, I don't know, several of them riding down the road. And uh, Luke said, uh, I'll write a song about Bill Dance. And Luke and I had, uh, I'd known Luke, I'd, I'd fished his lake before and with Dallas Davison. Dallas was a songwriter that had worked uh, with, uh, had written songs for Luke and, and he was one of his buddies. They grew up together, moved to Nashville together. And he said, uh, I'm going to just write a song about Bill Dance. And so they all got together. And they started, they wrote a song. And uh, Dallas told me, he said, uh, you're going to love it. And uh, I said, okay. So I didn't know anything about it. And we were at, we were at, uh, Johnny, Johnny Morris and I had gone to, uh, We'd gone to Alamorada and caught some uh, caught some fish, some fish for the aquarium there, and for the wonders, wonders of wildlife. And Johnny had to, had had opened the wonders there, and uh, he had a big big promotion, and. He had Jimmy Carter was there. Uh, I don't think who all was there. Jimmy was there. George Bush was there. Uh, oh, he had everybody there for that for that big big opening. And I was backstage with. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't know, with several, with, uh, several entertainers and, uh, somebody said, uh, Dallas Davidson's standing right there. And I said, Dallas, what's he doing here? And I had fished with Dallas. Dallas had written 17 number one hits. And when I did that show with him, I titled the show 17 hits <laughs> and, uh, and we did it on Luke's Lake. And of course, Luke 
couldn't fish with me. He, Luke and I wanted to do a show together. And Luke had told me, he said, doggone it. But Luke was tied in with Cabela's. And Johnny hadn't bought Cabela's at that time. So Cabela's and Bass Pro were in competition. And we just couldn't, we couldn't do it. And uh, so anyway, uh, so Dallas and I did the show on Luke's Lake. and. Uh, Luke was there, and, but anyway, uh, I saw Dallas standing there, and I, I walked up, and I said, hey, what are you doing? He says, uh, you know, Luke's going to sing your Luke, Luke, Luke's gonna sing your song tonight. I said, what? He said, Luke's going to sing your song tonight. And I said, Luke's here? And he said, yeah, he's up on the stage with Tracy Bird. And uh, I'd been backstage with John Anderson. And uh, I said, well, I didn't even know Luke was here. I didn't even know you were here. He said, yeah. And I said, Luke's going to sing the song. What song? He said, I want to be Bill Dance or whatever the name of the song. I think it was that. I wish I was Bill Dance. I want to be Bill Dance. And I said, uh, well, I can't wait to hear that. So anyway, he said, it's, it, it's, it's, the third, it's the fourth song. He's going to sing it. So I'm standing down there with Dallas. And so Luke's up there and they're all picking and carrying on. And Luke sings a couple of songs. And then finally he says, I want to sing a song. And this is the first time I've, I've ever done it. So I may kind of mess up a little bit, but I think I got all the words down right for it. And I'm, I'm going to try to sing it. And everybody was there. Uh, Evan Costner was there. Uh, it was just a big, I mean, the place was packed. And so he starts singing. And as he starts to sing, he he blows the first line. He said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, let me, let me, let me do this. I'm going to tell y'all a story about Bill Dance. And he tells the story and he says, how this, how this story, how this song came about. And he tells the story. He said, I always wanted to fish with Bill and I had a chance, but I knew I had a conflict because my ties were with Cabela's and Bill's ties were with Bass Pro. But now, that Johnny's bought Cabela's, it looks like my chance is going to be real good. And I'm going to have an opportunity to fish with Bill. And uh, so anyway, they kind of laughed about it. And he said, now I'm going to try to sing this song. And he, uh, he got, got, got going and started singing and he sang it and everybody applauded and went crazy and uh, it went real well and and then he said is Bill here and they said yeah he says is Bill here and he said yeah 
Harry's down there. Dallas loving up on loving up on my bill. And Dallas was down there. We hugged We had arms around each other. And so I got up and walked out on the stage. And uh, he took his uh, took his guitar off and he came across the stage and met me, hugged my neck and kissed me on the cheek. And, uh, he, that that's the first time I heard the song. And Johnny went crazy. He loved it. And and then it wasn't long. It was several months he was going to do a video on it so he called me and I went up to Franklin Tennessee and there was a bunch of us we got together up there we shot a video on it and uh, Johnny came up and several of us and we, we did a video on it and it was just it was just I mean really special but it turned out uh turned out it was uh it turned out real well no it's beautiful it's fantastic the song and the video well i was going to switch i was going to switch to another question we've been chatting for almost an hour now and i wanted to kind of get us into a wrap up um but i want you to tell one more story for me because sure. we've all come to know the trademark tennessee hat but Tell us the sure. story of Doug Dickey giving you that first ball cap in the late 60s. And I have to add, as I do, that we cannot forget that Doug Dickey was a gator. Right. I used to, I'd get calls from recruiting at Tennessee. And uh, they'd say, we, we've, got a, we've got a real good prospect in Alabama. Or we've got a good prospect in Mississippi or Kentucky or wherever. Is, he loves to fish, and he's thinking about coming to Tennessee. Bill, would you call him? And recruiting would call me, and I said, yeah, give me his name. So I'd call him, and I'd say, hey, uh, John, whatever your name is, uh, I said, uh, I understand uh, uh, you're a avid football player at uh, – First View High in, in Mobile, Alabama. Yes, sir. And, and uh, I said, and I also understand you like to fish. Yes, sir, I sure do. I said, well, let me tell you something. Uh, they tell me, University of Tennessee tells me you're a Cracker Jack uh, football player, and you, you're thinking about uh, you visited Tennessee. And I want you to know that we have some great, great fishing in Tennessee. We've got the Tennessee River. We've got good bass fishing there, smallmouth fishing. We've got 26 great lakes across our state. And I promise you this, if you come to Memphis and you have time, and I was serious about it, I said, if you have time, I'd like to meet you. And I've got some lakes within 30 minutes of uh, Memphis State, if you play the Tigers, that I can take you to and we can fish a little bit together. But I'd love for you to come to Tennessee if you possibly could. And uh, uh, they're great. it's a great university. It's got a lot of tradition. And uh, they're televised quite a bit. And we should consider Tennessee. And maybe we could get together and go fishing if that's possible. He said, I sure would like to do that. And I said, well, we'd love to have you there. 
And that's what I do for the for the school. And so I was serious. If he came, if they came to Memphis, I I would take him. You know, if he came to Tennessee. And but anyway, uh, that's what I would do. And one day in the mail, I got a Tennessee cap. I got two of them, and I wore that cap uh, to uh, Ross Barnett, and I won. I, I won the tournament. And then right after that, we went to Smith Lake in Alabama, and I won it. And then right after that, we went to a Rayburn in Texas, and I won it. Hmm. And somebody said, "Boy, cap is a is a lucky hat. You better wear it." And I just started wearing it and became a trademark. And Doug Dickey was coaching at Tennessee at that time. And then Coach Dickey left and went to Florida. Where he graduated. Then he came. Huh? That's also where he graduated from. Yeah, he he went to Florida. And then he came back to Tennessee as the AD. Yep. Then he went back to Florida as the AD. Indeed. He I talked to him coach. Jacksonville. Now, uh, he called me right before uh, he came. He, he went to Florida as AD and then came back to Tennessee as an AD. And he called me back. He called me and he said, Bill, I'm fixing to retire. We're going to play the uh, Florida. Uh, we're going to play the Miami Hurricanes. And I'd love to, for you to walk out in center field with me uh, at halftime at our homecoming game. And I, I wanted to real bad, but I had a conflict because I had a promotion and I couldn't do it. But, woo, look, Miami beat the fire out of Tennessee at that homecoming <laughs> game. But I was doing a talk show with Jeff Larkman, who is with the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he does their radio. And he said, somebody's listening to to you this morning, Bill. And I said, who? He said, well, I'm going to tell you, uh, as soon as we go back on the air, Doug Dickey, he's living in Jacksonville and he's listening to you. So surprise him and say something to him. And I said, okay. So we went back on the air and I said, I, I started, we started talking and I said, boy, I feel, I can't wait to come down there and fish with you, Jeff. Uh, and he said, well, you know, we're going to try to catch those big reds right here at the mouth of the St. John's River. And I said, well, if I wear my teacap, I know we will. And I said, uh, ever since Coach Dickey gave me these teacaps, it's just changed my it's just changed my luck. And I said, I really owe, owe a lot to Coach Dickey. And I said, you know, he's a fine fella. And I sure would love to talk to him sometime. You ever, you remember Doug, you remember Coach Dickey? And he said, yeah, I remember him. And uh, I said, yeah, he was at Tennessee and then at Florida. But he was a great coach and a great AD at Tennessee. And he said, you know something, Bill? I think he, he's, he's hearing what you're saying right now. And I said, what? Is he in the studio with you? He said, no, but he's listening to you. And I said, coach, are you li- are you listening to me? Ta- it's a good thing I'm saying good things about you. And he started. <laughs> But anyway, he he was listening. They shot a picture of him and sent it to me. But he's living in Jacksonville now. Uh, yeah, it's such a great story, and you know he was a great coach, and you know that's been such a fantastic trademark for you. So this has all been fantastic, and I could listen to you tell stories all day. But 
I want to get to our final wrap-up question, and this is the question I ask everybody who comes on the Fishing Professor Rodcast. And given just the sheer numbers and variety of fish and places you've had the opportunity to fish and to target fish throughout your career, what's your grail fish? What's your bucket list fish? That one fish out there that you're still hoping to catch? Well, I I, I do I have been blessed uh, to have fished both salt and fresh water, and I've never caught a fish I didn't like. Um, I would say one one fish that I would really like to catch is a big sturgeon. In uh, up in the north northwest or uh, Russia, well, you got a place you want to do it? Maybe in the Snake River. Yeah, I had the chance to do that on the Columbia a couple of years ago. Well, maybe there. You know, how big? How big was he? Oh, mine was not as big. I was with Glenn Hughes um, and uh, Gary Jennings from ASA, and we were we were sturgeon fishing. Mine wasn't that big, four feet. I think the biggest one we got was six or seven feet. Well, that's a big one. Oh, there were some big ones there. Definitely there. Well, Mr. Dance, thank you so much for your time. This has just been fantastic. I hope I gave you some of the stuff that you needed. And the one thing that... Uh, you know, uh, I'd just say that you know that without Ray Scott, there would there would be no Bill Dance, and it, it it's just uh, and there'd be no Johnny Mars, there'd be no Bass Pro Shop, there'd be uh, this industry. I don't think would be near as big as it is today because uh, Ray. He started so much, so much, and, and kick-started so many people's career. It's just he did so much for so many, and I meant to say that just a minute ago, but I didn't get a chance to say it because I, I thought about something else. But uh, uh, he was—I uh, told Ken Dukes one time: if Ray Scott tells you a flea could pull a plow, you better hitch him up. But I, my guess is Ken told friend. everybody else. <laughs> Pardon? And my guess is Ken wrote it down and told everybody else. I, I wouldn't doubt it a bit, but I tell you, I miss Ray, and I'll always, I'll never forget him. I'll tell you that he was, he was a keeper. I can promise you that. Wow. Okay. Wasn't that just a fantastic conversation with Bill Dance? I mean, I could sit and listen to that man tell stories all day. I wish someone would set up a show or a podcast that was just the Bill Dance story hour. That would be fantastic. I'd love to be in the room when he and his buddies just sit around shooting the shit. I bet that would be just one of the most educational experiences one could have. But alas, I think we also need a break today, a bourbon break. And since Mr. Dance brought it up, let's stick to the Bill Dance theme and let's turn our whiskey wander into that classic bottle of Jack Daniels. And I'm not talking gentleman Jack, the Jack single barrel, Jack Tennessee honey, Tennessee fire, or Tennessee apple. No, I'm talking old number seven, Tennessee sour mash whiskey. The black label that has been copied and parodied on every t-shirt in every biker gear shop in Daytona and Sturgis 
and every Spencer's and every last one of America's dying malls. And yes, I get it. You're asking, how in the hell does one review Jack Daniels? I mean, that's like reviewing milk or spring water. It's just always been there and will always be there. And really, do you think for a second I'd be dumb enough to say anything critical about Jack Daniels, let alone something negative about that honeydew vine water? Talking smack about JD is tantamount to dissing America, and you can't hold a Jack Daniels responsible for the behavior of a few sick, twisted individuals. For if you do, then shouldn't we blame the whole distillation system? And if the whole distillation system is guilty, then isn't this an indictment of our whiskey institutions in general? I put it to you, Greg, isn't this an indictment of our entire American society? Well, you can do whatever you want to me, but I am not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth the United States of America. That's right. Jack Daniels is the grandfather of America. Wait, wait. Maybe old granddad is the grandfather of America? Jack Daniels is America's badass uncle who... Oh, wait. That's Uncle Sam. Jack Daniels is America's whiskey, and without America's whiskey, well, America might as well just start drinking vodka and throw our arms up and surrender to the Ivans, and the hell with that. And yes, I will admit, I love Jack Daniels. In fact, and this is pure truth, I have been such a devotee of JD that about 20 years ago, one of my graduate students at the University of Florida, when he graduated with his PhD, he gifted me a framed poster that is a portrait of Mr. Jack Daniel himself and the big black lettering that reads, Jack Daniel, our benevolent sponsor. And I shit you not that that black framed poster adorns the wall of my University of Florida office right above my desk so that every student faculty member, administrator, donor, visitor, or whoever else comes to visit me is greeted by the image of old Jack's colossal mustache, Stetson, a cowboy hat, and those words proclaiming the benevolence of Mr. Daniel. Disclaimer, neither the Fishing Professor Rodcast nor the Bourbon Break is sponsored by Jack Daniel or the Jack Daniels Distillery or anyone else for that matter. But to review Jack Daniels isn't just to review a great whiskey. It's also to review a legend with legendary stories. And at some point, the actual liquid in the bottle becomes only a facilitator for epic tales, a character, and fantastic stories. I mean, you do not earn the reputation as the best-selling whiskey in the world without the mythology of a god and surrounding demigod characters. So let's explore some of those legends. Now, our hero, Jasper Newton Daniel, who most folks knew as Jack, left home back in 1864 and was taken in by Reverend Dan Call, who, along with an enslaved man by the name of Nathan Nearest Green, taught Jack the art of whiskey-making. Now, old Jack ended up hiring Nearest as the head distiller of Jack Daniels Distillery, and in 1866, Jack established the first ever registered distillery in the U.S. Now, a hundred years later, in the 1960s, Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey wasn't the ubiquitous world-renowned whiskey it is today. In fact, back then, the company was really just a regional distributor, which only sold about 150,000 cases of, of the Jack each year. But then something amazing happened. Frank Sinatra walked on stage holding a glass filled with what would become his trademark drink. Three rocks, two fingers of Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey, and a splash of water. And then, 
The Sultan of Swoon held up his glass to his audience and he uttered those life-altering words. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Daniels, and it's the nectar of the gods. That sounded a hell of a lot more like Elvis, good Tennessee boy too, than it did um, the uh, Frank Sinatra voice. Sorry about that. I have not practiced my Frank Sinatra imitation. Ba-ba-boom. That's actually Bing Crosby now I'm going to. All right, let's get back to the story. Less than a year later, after Frank walked on stage and said this, Jack Daniels Distillery was shipping out more than double the number of cases of whiskey than they had before Old Blue Eyes introduced us all to that beautiful nectar. Now, in 1988, when the chairman of the board passed on, he was buried with a bottle of the Black Label. And in 2015, to mark the 100th anniversary of Swoonatra's birthday, Jack Daniels released the collector's series of Sinatra series, a special Jack Daniels whiskey that was selected by Sinatra's family. They released 20,000 of the special blue bottles, which was a tribute to old blue eyes, with the plan of 100 barrels at 100 proof for his 100th birthday. Wow. And if that's not enough, how about the legend of Jack Daniels and the Rolling Stones? Surely you've seen all those iconic pictures Jim Marshall took of Keith Richards with a bottle of Jack. Well, the story goes that when the Stones were working on the 1972 album Exile on Main Street, and let's admit it, Shake Your Hips, Sweet Virginia, and Ventilator Blues are just as good as it gets. But while they were working on Exile, in Keith's humid basement studio, Keith started to lose his voice. And according to Mick, and this is a quote from Mick Jagger, I will not try to imitate Mick Jagger. As soon as I opened my mouth to sing, my voice was gone. It was so humid, all the guitars were out of tune by the, t- out of tune by the time we got to the end of each number. And then Keith jumps in, and this is a quote from Keith, Keith Richards. That's when I got into Jack Daniels, because you're trying to get the backup vocals finished on a track, and the voice starts to go. This whiskey will give you another half hour. It's those fumes that do it, man. Wow, what an endorsement. And then there's the legend of Lemmy of Motorhead, who drank Jack and Coke like water. In fact, legend has it that Lemmy drank a bottle of Jack a day for 38 straight years. Hey, in my family, there's a story that says that my great-grandfather used to say that if you drink one-ounce shot of whiskey every evening at exactly 5 o'clock for 95 years, you'll live to be an old man. Hey, remember that video from Van Halen's 1984 hit, Panama? Remember Michael Anthony's Jack Daniels bottle-shaped bass as he glides across the stage on a wire fly system like Sandy Duncan? Well, that bass now hangs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and is part of the reason that Michael partnered, Michael's partnered with Jack Daniels to make that bass is that Michael's was at the time and still is a Tennessee Squire, an elite group of people who own a little piece of land at the distillery. There may be no better pairing than Jack Daniels and Van Halen. Hey, fans of Scarface, well, take a look because Frank Lopez, who was played by Robert Loggia, always has a bottle of Jack on his desk in the movie. Motley Crue fan like me? Check out the cover of their autobiography, The Dirt, Confessions of the World's Most Notorious Rock Band, which was also the basis for their movie on Netflix, Dirt. The cover of that book is a tribute to the Jack Daniels bottle. Hey, speaking of tribute art and covers, 
The cover of Mel McDaniel's 1980 album, I'm Countryfied, features a design based on the label of Jack Daniel's Whiskey. The cover of Patrick Winsick's book, Broken Piano for President, features a design based on the label of Jack Daniel's Whiskey, which, by the way, earned Winsick a cease and desist letter from the company. However, the whiskey company said that the cover could be used on the book's second reprinting, and it would compensate the author if he chose to comply during the current run. Hey, don't forget the Charlie Daniels Band album, Way Down Yonder. It's got JD bottles on it. Let's just own it. Jack Daniels is not just a whiskey. It's a symbol. It represents rebellion, freedom, expression, individuality, and America. Jack Daniels for president, damn it. I could go on ad infinitum, but let's just face it. Jack Daniels is an icon in rock music, in country music, in film, in art. Jack Daniels was cool before cool was cool, and now Jack Daniels really is our benevolent sponsor, hosting so many fantastic musicians and concerts all over the world, including Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza, Vibra Urbana, and so many more. And can you imagine how many times this libation has been the muse of so many fantastic artists who find creativity in that ephemeral spirit? I am guessing that the Stones owe Jack a few bucks in royalties for what they wrote while under the creative influence of Old Number 7. And speaking of Old Number 7, do you know why that moniker appears on the Jack Daniels bottle? Well, there are two stories. The more popular version, according to Daniels biographer, says that the Old Number 7 brand name was the number originally assigned to the Daniels Distillery for government registration. But Daniel had to change the registration number when the federal government redrew the district and he became number 16 in District 5 instead of number 7 in District 4. But Daniel continued to use his original number as a brand name since the brand reputation had already been established. Now, a second version, which comes from the 1967 book Jack Daniel's Legacy, says that the name was chosen in 1887 after Jack visited a friend in Tullahoma, Tennessee, who had built a chain of seven stores. Either way, that old number seven is an iconic part of the brand. Now, look. I've been rambling on about Jack Daniel's place as an iconic whiskey, but I have not said a thing about the history of the whiskey and its distillation or the whiskey itself. itself. And you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not going to tell you the story of the company history because, well, I want that stuff of legend to be what you take away from the Rodcast bourbon break today. So let's pour a big old glass of Jack and let's talk about that golden liquid. Now, even though I don't want to go into the company history, I do need to point out that now Jack Daniels is owned by Louisville, Kentucky-based Brown Foreman, one of the largest wine and spirit companies around. They also own Old Forester, Woodford, Corbell, Finlandia, Pepe, Lo Pepe Lopez, and Chambord. But all those other brands ain't Jack Daniels. And they can only dream of being Jack Daniels. Every bottle of Finlandia dreams of being a bottle of Jack Daniels. When I grow up, I want to be a bottle of Jack Daniels. But you can't because Jack Daniels mash bill is 80% corn, 8% rye, and 12% malted barley. So it meets the requirement of being a bourbon. But it ain't a bourbon because, like Bill Dance, it's from Tennessee. And therefore, a Tennessee whiskey, which in this case is a claim of pride and honor. Now, Jack is aged in virgin American white oak, and it has the coloration of a rich, dark caramel. 
leaning toward molasses with tents of gold when the light passes through it. Man, you know, I used to date a girl with the eyes, the color of Jack Daniels. Man, I could get drunk staring into those eyes. Hey, that ought to be a thing. That should be a thing. Jack Daniels eyes. Girls with Jack Daniels eyes. That's a thing of beauty right there. Well, that Jack Daniels coloration is emphasized in that iconic bottle and black label with white script. I've always loved that the Jack bottle doesn't need pictures, no colorful artwork. Just a black background with a bunch of white text and an iconic font. You can download that font, by the way, and write all your term papers, proposals, resumes, user manuals, bomb threats, Dear John letters, bank, bank hold-up notes, ransom notes, and manifestos in the Jack Daniels font. Yeah, there's no art on this label, but the label itself is art. Just look at how many times it's been copied. Now, unlike many of you drinkers of Jack Daniels, the nose of JD is pleasant, sweet, vanilla-y with some toasted marshmallow, which I tend to find in whiskeys aged in white oak. There's also some spice here with maybe a little bit of citrus. The palate opens with that sweetness of the nose holding hands with that sour mash, giving you a blend of corn and banana with some of that vanilla lingering about. Now, pretentious bourbon snobs will tell you that Jack Daniels is a cheap-tasting bourbon and not worth the poor, that it's for the unsophisticated, the pedestrian drinker. But that's a bunch of hooey. What it is is Jack fucking Daniels, and it tastes like Jack Daniels, and that means it tastes like freedom. Look, we all got weaned on Jack. So for so many of us, it was the first hard liquor we got friendly with. And there's no other whiskey out there that has a palate like Jack. And that's fine because there's nothing wrong with Jack. In fact, there is everything right with Jack. For decades, my drink of choice was a bud and a shot of Jack. Hence my grad student gifting me that poster. And the only reason I would order a bud and a shot of Jack is because I used to always order a bottle of Jack and a straw, but not one bartender has ever delivered on that request. And to this day, Jack is an important part of my life. Hell, I even have this little metal thing in my truck that is designed to look like a Jack Daniels label that says, I know Jack. And let's face it, Jack is what we need in our lives. Jack doesn't even require that you use a glass to drink it. Jack is best served by passing the bottle, upending it, and hearing those bubbles gurgle up as you take a few swigs. Glasses? We don't need no stinking glasses. Hey, there's this great pic of my mom from my wedding upending one of those oversized bottles of Jack. It was a very proud moment for me. And yes, we have to mention, too, that Jack and Coke is probably the most iconic cocktail ever invented. And as much as I enjoy a Jack and a Coke on the rocks, I still have a tough time justifying contaminating my Jack Daniels with food. So those are a few of my thoughts about Jack Daniels, perhaps too many of my thoughts about Jack Daniels. But hell, when you're thinking about Jack Daniels, you got to pour them thoughts out. As always, before we go, and as a final note in my regular disclaimer... Please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The folks over at Jack Daniels have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of whiskey know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, and speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to the Bull and Whistle on the corner of Duval and Caroline Street in Key West. You know Caroline Street. 
There's a woman going crazy on Caroline Street, stopping every man that she does meet, saying, if you'll be gentle, if you'll be sweet, I'll show you my place on Caroline Street. The Bull and the Whistle are the last of the great classic open-air bars in Key West. Man, have I had some fun afternoons, evenings, and nights at the Bull and Whistle. But be warned, if you're going to wander all the way up to the third floor and find yourself in the garden, just be ready to shed those clothes and to gaze upon sights one might not want to behold. But like they say, another day, another bender, no retreat, and no surrender. Hey, as always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Let's get back to the casting. Okay, let's keep the Bill Dance theme rolling for the rest of this week's broadcast and stick with the bass-related theme. And let's take a look at my top 10 swim baits for largemouth bass. And yeah, I know there's a lot of talk out there about using swim baits and their effectiveness for catching big bass, which is exactly why I want to think about which swim baits I find most productive for targeting bass. Because all that chatter needs to settle down and let us get to talking about those great swim baits that are out there. Now, swim baits were initially introduced into bass fishing to target fish over 10 pounds, the pigs and the hogs. So the general thought is that swim baits are the best large fish targeting lures. This is also why swim baits tend to be larger, say in that 6 to 12 inch range. Now, a lot of folks I talk to fall back to that adage of big baits means big fish. And certainly when swim baits made their way into the bass world, that was the intent. But keep in mind that little bass will eat big baits too. So when you're into those one to two pound fish, don't think that a big swim bait is going to deter their bite. Those smaller fish are as likely to hit a large swim bait as are their bigger brothers and sisters. Now, a lot of this has to do with a bass's aggressive no back down attitude. Also, swim baits tend to present with realistic swimming action, which can trigger a bass, no matter what size, to see the bait as prey. That natural swimming action on a soft body swim bait is driven by the tail design. A lot of soft body swim baits are designed with wedge tails to create that natural swimming action. You'll also find some swim baits designed with boot tails to get the lure rolling a little bit. For hard body swim baits, a lot of the action comes from the segmenting of the body design. You can find hard swim baits with two segments or as many as six. The snag <laughs> with hard swim baits is that they're usually rigged with two or three treble hooks, which can make them difficult to fish around grass or cover, but they perform great on points, flats, bars, and humps. So for today's Bill Dance-inspired top 10, I'm going to group soft body and hard body swim baits together and tell you my top 10 favorite swim baits. All right, let's open this up with my number 10 swim bait, and let's go with a great beginner swim bait, and a swim bait that comes in at a very reasonable price point of less than five bucks. I'm talking, of course, about Storm's Wild Eye Swim Shad. This is a pre-rigged soft body shad that's made from a really durable plastic. It's rigged with an internal weight head that includes Storm's holographic wild eyes. The wild eye swim shad has, has flash holographic flash foil coloration, it comes in about eight color patterns. This is an easy lure to work, which is why I say it's a good lure for beginners just learning how to work swim baits. It's one of those cast and reel lures that doesn't require a lot of work to get great swimming action from it. Just cast and reel. Its oversized paddle tail 
creates all the action, no matter what your retrieval speed is. Okay, at number nine, I want to go with a lure that I heard a lot about before I even got the chance to fish it, which sort of clued me into the popularity of this lure. And I'm talking about Storm's Arashi Glide Bait. So we'll open this top 10 week, this top 10 this week with two lures from Storm. The one word accolade for the Arashi Glide Bait is smooth. This bait slides through the water, and the two-segment body has great gliding and swimming action. The lure swims with its head down just slightly, creating the appearance of a bait fish looking for forage on the bottom. It's got a very slow sink rate, and the jointed segments make it very sensitive to rod tip twitching, making it easy to get that lure to dart and glide. The lure swims in a kind of a lazy S-curve path, like a fish wandering in search of forage. Bass will follow this slow glide, but snap that rod tip a bit, and the lure makes a quick 180-degree turn, which will trigger a following bass to strike. Okay, you know, since I started this top 10 off talking about the Storm Wild Eye Swim Shad, a lure that's great for beginners, let me keep with the idea of a swim bait for beginners and offer up as my number eight swim bait for bass, Berkeley's Gulp Alive Paddle Shad Swim Bait. This is a lure that's got a fundamental lifelike shad body design, but it's also got that fantastic edge provided by the Gulp Alive scent formula. The Gulp Alive swim shad has solid action, and when rigged with a swim bait hook or a jig head, this is the lure that doesn't take much to learn to work. The Gulp Alive swim shad comes in 14 color patterns, so you can match color to the needs of your local environment and where you're fishing. All right, at number seven, I want to nod to all of Bass Assassin's soft body swim baits, but I want to give number seven props to Bass Assassin's Boss Shiner, the 4.7 inch model. This is a great lure for any, situ any situation, whether you're fishing it deep, around drop-offs for bigger lunkers, or across bars and shell mounds. The oversized tail on this lure gives it great swimming action. I like rigging these with a weighted swim hook for the best action. They're available in more than 20 color options, so you can find the right pattern for your local conditions. Okay, at number six, I want to go with Triton Mike Buka Bullshad Slow Sinking Swim Paint. This is a three-jointed swim bait or four-segmented bait that is designed to mimic different types of shad and other larger bait fishes like threadfin shad, blueback herring, shiner, and gizzard shad. One of the things that I love about the Triton Mike Bucka Bull Shad is that the finish isn't that glossy finish that so many other lure manufacturers use. This lure has kind of a rougher finish, which just seems more lifelike to me. I also like the way the Triton Mike Bucka Bull Shad performs no matter what retrieval speed you're using. That swimming action just comes through even at really slow retrieves, though I must admit the bull shad has the reputation for its high speed performance. And hey, if you stop the retrieve on this lure, the lure drops nose down to the bottom like it's feeding on the bottom. You can actually jig this swim bait effectively also. Okay, at number five, I'm going to go with Savage Gear's 3D Shine Glide Swim Bait. Like most of Mad Grossel's designs, the 3D Shine Glide Bait is an incredibly lifelike, effective lure. Like a lot of the Savage Gear lures, the design is based on 3D scans of bait fish, adding to its lifelike swimming action. This is a slow-sinking glide bait that's designed with two segments, which are incredibly sensitive to how you twitch the rod, giving it a smooth darting motion. It's available in five and a quarter inch version and a larger seven and a quarter inch version. Just a great, consistent, smooth lure. All right, at number four, 
Let's go with Live Target's Common Shiner swim bait. Now, you've probably heard me talk a lot about the Live Target swim bait series for saltwater, and it really is the same attributes between the saltwater swim baits and the freshwater swim baits that get my attention. Like everything Live Target does, the 3D Common Shiner swim bait has a very realistic look. The Common Shiner swim bait is designed to run at a variety of retrieval speeds. For me, this lure performs best at faster retrieves. The 3D Common Shiner comes in two color patterns, a silver and a blue, a silver and blue and a silver and bronze, and it's four inches. This is just a great swim bait overall. All right, at number three, let's go economical and give props to Bass Pro Shop's Show Me the Money swim bait. This is a soft body swim bait with a laminated body that has molded in gill and scale patterns. The eyes are painted on and give the lure a fairly realistic look. But what really attracts me to the show me the money swim bait is the flat sided body design. This unique body design runs true in the water and the broad paddle tail gives the lure consistent and realistic swimming action no matter what speed you're retrieving it. And like I said, these are reasonably priced. They're available in three sizes, three, four, and five inches, and come in eight color patterns. Okay, it's hard to believe, but I am going to put Spro's BBZ1 Rat in my runner-up position. And I will admit that part of my reason for doing so is that I am a big fan of Bill Simental and his design, and the rationale for this lure is just fantastic. And yeah, I get that a lot of you are going to say the BB1, BBZ Rat isn't really a swim bait, that it's more of a hybrid swim bait, crankbait, topwater bait. But this is my top 10, and I'm going to lean heavily on the Rat's swim bait characteristics to claim it really is designed to work like a swim bait. Yeah, because it's a lip bait, it swims like a crankbait, but its segmented body gets it moving and rolling more like a swim bait. And in that, it's an effective bass lure. Okay, that brings us to my number one favorite swim bait for bass. But let's get a quick recap of all the others in the top 10 first. At number 10, Storm's Wild Eye Swim Shad. At nine, Storm's Arashi Glide Bait. At eight, Berkeley Gulp's Alive Paddle Shad Swim Bait. At number seven, Bass Assassin's Boss Shiner. At six, Triton Mike Buka Bull Shad Slow Slinking Swim Bait. At five, Savage Gear's 3D Shine Glide Swim Bait. At four, Live Target's Common Shiner Swim Bait. At three, Bass Pro Shop's Show Me the Money Swim Bait. At number two, Spro's BBZ1 Rat. And that brings us to my favorite swim bait for targeting largemouth bass. That is, oh, I gotta say it. Bass Dash Swim Shad Glide Bait. Hey, this is a 7-inch slow-sinking slow glide bait that has just remarkable swimming action. I love its durability no matter where in the water column you're fishing it. Its single-jointed, two, single two-segmented body really does embody an action that can only be described as a glide. It moves in broad, curved S pattern, and when twitched or paused, it just seems to attract that bite. The smoothness of the glide comes from the fact that the lure has eight stainless steel bar ball bearings in the lure, which keep the lure balanced and give it enough weight to get really great distance on a cast. Those steel balls also add an auditory attractant as they click when they move inside the lure. I like this added sensory attractant in low visibility water conditions. The 3D laser eyes and that textured soft rubber tail just adds to the visual attractant qualities. 
This is a lure that was made for big bass. So that's it for this week's top 10 list. Keep in mind that none of my top 10 lists are influenced by corporate powers. Just my honest thoughts as I about the gear that I use. As always, don't forget that if you have comments or questions about my top 10, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. Well, 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 man, was that just a big old time. Man, I enjoyed that. I cannot even begin to tell you how honored I am to have had Mr. Dance on the Rodcast this week. The man is a gentleman in the truest sense, and I could just sit and listen to him spin yarns about fishing all day and all night. The man can tell a story, and damn if he don't know a thing or two about fishing. So my sincere gratitude to Mr. Bill Dance. Of course, I hope you enjoyed that review of our other legend, Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey. I hope that review inspires you not only to pick up a big old bottle of Jack Black, but to live the rebellious, rock-and-roll, grinded-out, American, ass-kicking lifestyle that Jack embodies, because if you don't, you don't know Jack. I also hope you found my top 10 swim baits for Bass Countdown to be insightful. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish has been released. I say again, the fish has been released. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to keep an eye out for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and I hope that each member of my listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. If you're enjoying it, then your friends probably will too. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventafishing on Twitter or Instagram and friend us on Facebook at Inventafishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventafishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a whole bunch of other fantastic content. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!